Welcome to the New City Fellowship West End Sermon Podcast. We hope and pray this message equips, empowers, and encourages you. And now, today's sermon. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Now you remember, we're um, starting or continuing in our series on core values, as DJ mentioned already. And that value that we're talking about today, it's up here on the screen. It's this core value of the kingdom of God. Can you put that, that, that last slide back up? I'm going to read that. People of God are called to work out their love and obedience to him through a commitment to do justice and love mercy. God's expectation for us is to be an expression of his kingdom rule and reign in the midst of the nations of the earth, especially caring for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant, proclaiming the gospel in word and deed. So uh, maybe a reminder, you say, why are we doing a core value series again? It seems like we do that every year around this time. That's right, we do. Every year at the beginning of the year, we do a series on core values for those that have been here just to remind us and reground us in who we are and what we're going to be about and and where we're going. But then there's a lot of people that have come in the last year. And so it's a chance for you to understand more of, of who we are and why we're here and how, how God might have you fit into that. So this is the third week in the series. It's gotten off to a great start. Amen so far? Steve led us off with the gospel power and the sonship passage two weeks ago and Pastor Ant preached last week on the core team ministry. And so the third one today is the kingdom of God. The theme I'm calling this message is taken right from the passage and that is God's chosen servant God's chosen servant he's the one who brings the kingdom and carries the kingdom of God forward so here now the reading of God's word this is from Isaiah 42 now just to set the context in Isaiah really chapter 40 all through the rest of the of Isaiah it's written to a people in exile a people who are needing encouragement from God and God brings it And essentially what God says is, you know what, y'all, God, I'm sending somebody. I'm sending somebody who's going to deliver you, who's going to make things right. And so this passage is one of those. This is the first of, in Isaiah, what they call four servant songs. And Matthew, in fact, says, this is talking about Jesus, these first four verses of chapter 42. So here's the reading of God's word. Behold, my servant whom I uphold. My chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This is God's word. Let's open together with the word of prayer. God, we thank you again so much for your word. Thank you for how you've already met with us. Thank you for what we've heard from your word already. Your word testifies about itself that it's living and it's active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. And we're grateful for that because that means that you're able to get beneath the surface with us. You're able to get to our minds and our attitudes, our thoughts, even our very hearts. And so we pray that you would do that in this time that we're together this afternoon. 
Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence already. Thank you for how you've already met us. You're already present with us. So we pray you continue to open our hearts and minds to receive the word of God that we have today. And we pray not only would you help us understand these words, but Lord, we pray that you might help us live these words out. Help us to live out practically what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God right here in the West End. All this we ask for your glory, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, as Grace mentioned earlier, this is the first Sunday. Yeah, this is the first Sunday of Black History Month. And, and I don't know about you, but every, every day in my, my news feed on social media, I get a different, it's, it's great actually, I get um, on one of my sites, I get a different person that is profiling from black history and how God has used them in a powerful way. You can put up that first picture. And there's many people, you can probably name the people that are in, in that picture, but there's a lot of people I have never heard of that God used in powerful ways in the history of black people in this country. And it's not just black history, it's, it's history, not just American history, it's history in the world of what God is doing through these people. But as I'm reading some of the things that they did, I find myself a lot of times going, man, how in the world did they do that? How in the world did they keep on going? That's really what I'm thinking. How is it they did, that they didn't give up? How did they persevere? And what? And them this vision to continue to do all the things that they did in spite of the incredible opposition that they all faced in so many different ways. How did they do it? And somebody here, you say, Jesus, that's the answer, right? And every, yes, that's true. But, but even more, dial down a little bit deeper than that. What about Jesus that led him to do it? And I believe it ties into this core value that we're talking about today. The people of God, the people of faith that we read about in black history had a vision of the kingdom. And that is what shaped their vision. That's what gave them power to persevere, to continue to fight in spite of the opposition around them. And I want to share one example of that with you. Um, you can put up that next picture. Many of you know um, in 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King was arrested in, in Birmingham, Alabama. He had gone there to protest some of the amazing conditions and of injustice that are going on in this place. Birmingham, in, in many ways, was kind of a, a central place to where you, you could see it firsthand. And no offense to those in Birmingham, but y'all know the history. But if you think about that, if you, if you look back at that, it was an amazing turning point where things became more and more known of what was happening. In 1963, he's arrested and thrown in jail. And, and actually, while he's there, this isn't the first time that's happened, but while he's there, some local clergy, there's about eight of them, all white, from different pastors um, in the city, wrote a letter um, to the newspaper criticizing Dr. King for being there in Birmingham and doing what he's doing. And, and what they're saying is, this has nothing to do with being a pastor. This has nothing to do with the gospel. You just need to be patient. We're going to move along at a pace. You know, you should be out preaching the gospel. What does this have to do with the church? You're just causing trouble here. And he reads that, and he says, you know what? I get criticized a lot, and I don't always feel like I need to respond, but this time I've got to respond. And he writes a response really on the margins of the newspaper. And then he grabs some paper towels and toilet paper to write the rest. And he writes what becomes to be known as the 
letter from Birmingham jail. And there's two parts of that I'd like to read that really capture this kingdom of God idea that we're talking about today. You can put up that first quote from the letter. It says, in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard many ministers say those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I've watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and the secular. And then next slide. He says, there was a time, and now he's writing actually about the church in Acts. And he says, there was a time when the church was very powerful, in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Powerful image. It's an image of the kingdom of God and the church's role within that kingdom. The church is not called to be a thermometer merely reflecting the ideologies of the world around us. The church is called to be a thermostat. What does a thermostat do? It sets the temperature. Y'all like, I love a thermostat. Because it can turn the heat up. That's the call of the church. And you say, well, that was great news for Isaiah's audience. And it was. They received it as good news. But it wasn't just good news for them. It's also good news for us today. Because guess what? The same one who was going to bring about it in Isaiah's day. The same one who brought it about in, in the days of the early church. The same one. The same chosen servant that brought it about in the days of Dr. King is the same one that is God's chosen servant among us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we just want to look at three parts of this passage what it tells us about who he is, very simply, who he is and what he came to do and how he came to do it. That's all. Very simple, right? Who he is and what he came to do and how he came to do it. Now, why attention to that because guess what it tells us as the body of Christ it tells us who we are and what we're called to do and how we're called to do it so let's look at those things in turn so start first who he is and here at the first beginning you see that in verse one it says behold my servant and so you've got to understand a little bit about the context in chapter 41 He's talking about some of the other things that people would look to to provide ultimate deliverance. And first he says, behold, some of you are looking to idols. And he says, behold, the idols can do nothing. And then he, says, he talks about the people who look to idols. Behold, these people can do nothing. And then he comes to chapter 42 and says, behold, my servant. Do you get it? It's like God saying, boom, let me drop it right now. This is who's really going to change the world. It is my servant. He's the one who's going to bring the ultimate deliverance that we all long for. Now, I don't know if you all have heard this, but there's some football game going on next week. I don't know. Have you all heard about that? So, some, somebody said something about that. But it's interesting, as you step back and you look at the teams that are in this game, they both said, you know what? We have an idea 
of what it is that is going to deliver us and get us to the Super Bowl. And, and it worked. And there were very different things. On the one, the Rams, who used to be here, they, they sorry about that, sorry if that, sorry y'all. But who used to be here said, you know what, all we need is a veteran quarterback knows what he's doing, and if we get him, behold, we're going to be in the Super Bowl. But then the other team said, what we need is a young guy who's going to come up and we can build the thing around him. If we get the right young guy, behold, we're going to be in the Super Bowl. Well, it worked for both of them. Now we see who wins next week. But the same idea is here. Here is the Lord saying, behold, and you can put up the next slide. Back to the verse. What does it tell us about who he is? He says he's what my, what does he say? Where am I? You talk back in this congregation, right? Y'all forgot who you were. Lord, have mercy. Behold my servant. And in the Old Testament, right, you have God describing different people as his servant, right? He'll say, Moses is my servant. Noah is my servant. David is my servant. Even in Isaiah, they'll say Israel is my servant. But here he says, this is a unique, one-of-a-kind servant that is like no other. And what does it say about him? Whom I uphold. Remember, we were singing over and over again, you hold my hand. Here, God is saying, I am upholding this one. And he is going to succeed with the plan of God. And then look at the next part. It says, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And you all remember the wording at Jesus' baptism, right? The voice from heaven comes. And what does it say? This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And again, at his transfiguration, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And so he's a servant. He's upheld by God. He's a chosen one, and God delights in him. And then what does it say? How is he going to have power? I have put my spirit upon him. Now, again, in the Old Testament, we'll watch and we'll see. There's a lot of times when God has some special things for one of his servants to accomplish, and it'll say the spirit of God came upon them in a powerful way, like David when he's fighting with Goliath or with Samson when he's killing a lion or something like that. But here he says, my spirit is going to come on somebody in a special way, and he's not going to leave. He's going to be upon him. He's going to be anointed to preach good news to the poor and recovery of sight to the blind and freedom for the prisoner and release for the captives and all of those things. This is my servant. Look at what it says about him. I uphold him. He is my chosen one. I delight in him, and my spirit is going to be empowering him. This is who he is. So what should we do? How do we respond to that? What's the application? First application, praise Jesus because of who he is. Right in the Bible it says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Another place it says he's the visible image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. Y'all are not praising him yet. I'm, I'm giving you reasons to praise him. All right? What else does it say about it? He's the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. He's the one who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. That's who he is. 
us. But what else does that tell us? A little bit about who we are. What do you mean, Pastor? Well, we're the body of Christ. And so what does it mean about us? Guess what? Who also is God's chosen servant? We are. Not just Jesus. Not just Christ, but the body of Christ. We also are God's chosen servant. But look, you say, uh-oh. What else does it say, though? It says, whom I uphold. It doesn't just say that he upholds Jesus, but he also upholds us. He also upholds you. That's why it resonated so much when we were saying, you hold my hand because he does. Oh, you say, wouldn't it be wonderful to be chosen and delighted in like that son is? Well, guess what? Well, you are. <laughs> he doesn't just look at him and say, that's my beloved son. He also looks at you and says, you were my beloved daughter. You were my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And my soul, the God of the universe, my soul delights in you. How many of us long to have people that we love and respect and look up to delight in us? Well, here the God of the universe delights not just in him, but he also delights in you. And guess what? He hasn't just put his spirit on him. He also has put his spirit in us. Right? Remember, we, David talked about this. You'll receive power. When? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in the West End, in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and all the earth. I'm just making sure you're still paying attention. But it applies to the West End. That is his call for us. That's not only who he is, but that's also who we are. Now, second, what did he come to do? Let's go to that next slide. And here, I don't know if you caught this, but three times in these couple verses, it talks about what he came to do. So at the end of verse one, right, I put my spirit upon him. And what is he going to do? He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, skip to verse three. That next slide. It says, a bruised reed he will not break. We're going to come back to that. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. But again, at the end of verse 3, he will faithfully what? Bring forth justice. There it is again. All right, let's try one more. How about verse 4? Did he say it again? Do you ever notice how pastors keep on saying stuff over and over again? It's so that you can get it, so it's important. It says he's not going to grow faint or be discouraged. When? Till he has established justice in the earth. Over and over again, what did he come to do? Well, what this passage tells us about what he came to do is he came to bring forth justice. He came to bring forth justice. Well, what does justice mean, right? We got lots of definitions about what justice is. Well, what does the Bible say that justice is? What does the Bible mean by justice? We talked about it in the Old Testament. There's at least a couple um, uses of it. But at its base, what justice means is giving people what they are due. It's giving people what they are due. Now, we usually think about that in terms of punishment, right? You break a law, you break a commandment, then you are due. Justice is you receive punishment, right, for that thing. And that's true. That's right. That's one right use of it. But that's not all. What else are we due? Who are we? Remember, we talked about this at the beginning of our apologetic series. Every single 
person, no matter what they look like, no matter where they're from, no matter how they vote, no matter how they cook their chicken or wherever they live, every single person is made in the image and likeness of God. By virtue of that, it means that every single person is due to be treated with dignity and honor and respect. And so that is also what we are doing. And so in those passages where it talks about, where God says, I want you to care for the orphan and the widow and the foreigner and, and, and the poor, it's not just nice to care about them. It's not even just merciful to care about them. It is just. Because that is what they're due. As being image bearers of God. And there's a third use. Those are two uses. There's a third that he describes in Isaiah. At the end of verse 4, you see that part where it says the coastlands wait for what? The law. What law is that talking about? It's talking about the law of the word of God. And so there's a sense when he means by justice, he's also talking about making the law or the word of God known. That in and of itself is an expression of justice. Right. All right. So let's keep going. So justice described here. If you go back to verse one, I just want to look real quick at some things he says about his. He says, first, it's going to be a worldwide justice. He's going to bring justice, not just to the Israelites, not even just to the people of God. But there in that verse, it says, bring justice to the nations. Now go back to verse three. Let's see what else, what it says there. There it says, how is he going to bring forth justice? Faithfully. He's not going to be willy-nilly. He's not going to be inconsistent about how he brings it. He's going to faithfully bring forth justice. And then what did it say in that last verse, verse 4? Go back to that slide at the very end, or excuse me, in the middle there. Till he has established justice. He's going to make it a permanent thing. So what does he describe? This justice is going to be worldwide. He's going to bring it faithfully, and he's going to bring it permanently. Right? That's what it's talking about as he brings forth justice. This is what he came to do. So what does that say to us? What does that mean for us? Oops. Did I? Hold on. Oh, okay. It means that he came to bring forth justice. So it also means for us, that's also what we're called to do. We also are called to bring forth justice in the place that he has placed us. And for us, that's right here in the way. And so what does that mean for us? It means enter in to all the opportunities that God provides to work for justice and mercy in this community. And they could be formal things, right? Things we think about Restore St. Louis, and many of y'all are already doing those things. Whether it's tutoring or, or working with Inside Out with book, or whether it's working with Health Connection or whatever it is, however God is using you, and we continue to do that. But also, as we listen to the community and we grow more and more, there's going to be other ways that are revealed to us of how we might do justice in this community. I don't know what all those are yet. But whatever they are, we discover them and we step into them as the church. We continue to do that. We continue to bring forth justice. And then here's another thing, maybe that's more, more important 
than all of that is that we engage not just in the issues of our neighbors. We should do that. But we engage in the lives of our neighbors. We know them. We invest. We allow ourselves to be known by them. That's a part of what it means to do justice in this place. And that is what he's called us to do. Now, I don't know if y'all go through this as you're getting older, but you start to reflect on your life and stuff like that. I don't know if y'all ever experienced that. Well, I'll, t I'll tell y'all something. I'm 54 years old. Yeah, I used to think that was really old. But it, it seems kind of young to me now. But I was sitting back reflecting on that. Do you know that for the first 27 years of my life, I grew up and I lived and then I was involved in ministry in, in the suburbs, right, in Maryland. Kind of like suburbs of St. Louis. But then for the second 27 years of my life, I've been in urban contexts and living and working and ministering there in, in Baltimore and then here in St. Louis. And there's a lot of things that are similar, but there's a lot of things that are different too. But here's one thing I wanted to share with you is that I noticed right away there was one thing that was really different. And that is the response whenever we would talk about justice. It was weird because what do you think about that when you're in the suburbs? Well, what I would think is you're like, you hear God's justice, you would think, uh-oh, I got to get my act together. And you think about it in a very individualistic way. And you think about it in terms of getting yourself right but, um, because you're going to be judged by God and, and, doing, and, and stopping doing things you don't want to do and doing things you should be doing. That's what you would think about. But then it was very interesting that when I moved into the city and administering there and you talk about justice, the response was different. And it's not that people didn't care about it individually. But you know what the response was? It was like, yes, yes, yes. Not that people weren't worried about being right with God. People cared about that. But people would hear, wait, you mean God is going to set things right? God is going to do something about injustice? God is going to do something about oppression? He's really going to do that? Are you kidding me? Yes, God. Yes, bring justice now. Please, God. It was a different response. Why was that different? Because people were suffering in all of those ways. And they longed for this aspect of who God is to be revealed. And it should be. One of my dreams and hopes for us as a church is that people in the West End would say, you know what, because the West End is here, I experience God's justice. I experience more of his justice and mercy. Whether they come to the church or not, they might go to another church, might go to another church no. but I would want them to experience that because of what God does in us and through this community. How many of y'all have ever seen um, It's a Wonderful Life, right? You, it comes on every year at Christmas time, about 34 times, right? It, it's actually an amazing story. If you think about it, right, this, the, the lead character is a guy named George Bailey in the story. And he's just a regular dude, right? He's loving his wife, his kids. He's got a job. He's loving his neighbors day after day after day. And, and he thinks, you know what, man, I, I missed my chance to make it big somewhere else. 
and day after day he's doing what he thinks is not really that big a deal at all. And then he begins to get into some financial trouble. Anybody know what that feels like? And you know what he began to think? He began to think, you know what? My family would be better off without me. Maybe I should end it all and then they would get the insurance money. And, and so he goes to a bridge, right? And he's about to throw himself off the bridge. And then his guardian angel shows up in the story. And the angel throws himself off the bridge. And so George, being who he is, jumps into the water to save the angel. But what he realizes, the angel was really saving him. And he began to see what his life would look like if he didn't exist. And you can put up that first picture. He grew up in a place called um, Bedford Falls, right? That was the name of their community. Wonderful little town. Well, when he went back, as if he had never existed, Bedford Falls was no more. Instead, you can put up the next picture. It had become, what was, if you look, Potter was a rich, wealthy, mean, cantankerous, unjust, oppressive guy in that community. And without George doing the things that he was doing in that community to fight against oppression and injustice and to love the people in that community, Potter's influence took over the whole thing. And he began to look and see and he saw the lives of people if he wasn't in their lives. In fact, some people wouldn't have even had lives anymore. And he was so distraught by the end. He's begging, he's crying. He says, please, I want to go back. I want to go back. Even though there's problems, I want to go back. And so then he, you put up that last picture. He's so happy he gets back. He's back in Bedford Falls again. He's so happy to be back, even though he's still got all the same problems. But now he's gotten the picture to see what difference his life that he thought was making no difference at all before. But now he gets to see the difference that this ordinary life, wonderful life made in that community. And so my hope for us, my hope for me, in this community is that we would have that kind of impact, that we would be loving people, loving our neighbor. What does that mean for you? For some of us, it might mean we need to enter in, right? We've been on the outside looking and seeing what this is about, but maybe God is calling you. Maybe God is calling you today to enter in more now into what it is that God is doing here. Maybe honestly for some of us, and this happens periodically with me. The call is to check ourselves. To say not if we're doing something, but to examine our own hearts and our own lives to see how we're doing it. To say, are we doing it in a way that dignifies our neighbors? Or are we doing what we do in a way that benefits ourselves or dignifies us? We've always got to be checking that. And then finally, for some of you, some of you, you come here today and you're tired or you're home and you're weary. And you are wondering, does what I do matter? Does anybody see it? Does anybody care? Does it make a difference at all? Because you feel like you're just beating your head up against the wall day after day. Yes, 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 it matters. So keep at it. Keep on loving. Keep on serving. Keep on praying. Keep on doing the thing that God has called you to do in this place and watch what he will do.
Jeremiah, I'm sorry, I'm only on the second point. <laughs> but we're going to transition to the... <laughs> So that's what he came to do, and that it tells us what we do. We also looked at who he is and what that means about who we are. But lastly, how? How is he going to do it? And we need to pay attention to that because that's going to tell us how we're called to do it. So look at the verse, verse 2. This is one of the wildest things. The how he came to do it. This is the craziest part of this passage. Verse 2, it says, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard, excuse me, in the street. And this is exactly the opposite of the way all the other rulers carried out their power in this place. And we could say, well, that's a lot different from the way people carry out their power now, isn't it? But that's not the way that he would. But then look at this next verse, verse 3. He has this amazing combination of gentleness and strength. It says, a bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. Now, can you put up that picture? Have y'all ever been by the water and seen one of those bruised reeds? Right? If you go and you pick it up with, without any care at all, you break that. It'll completely break that thing. To be able to pick up that bruised reed, you've got to really gently handle that thing to be able to pick it up. It actually takes a lot of strength to be able to do that. And have you ever been in a situation where you've been without power and you had to use candles? Kids, I know now you use your phone, right, when, you, when your power goes out. But back in the day, see, I'm 54, we used to use candles. And you get the candle all the way down to the very end, right? And, you just, and you, if you walk by the thing too fast, you'll blow the fire out. So you've got to be careful exactly how you handle that. Now put the verse back up. That's telling us a little bit about how he's going to do this. He's going to bring, on the one hand, this amazing, incredible gentleness, and at the same time, with incredible, great power like none other. Look at verse 4. Right, because somebody's tempted to say, wait a minute, you know that saying, don't take my kindness for weakness. Right, don't take his gentleness. do this all day long, as Captain America would say. That's what he's saying about his power and who he is. He's not going to quit until it's done. Which means for his people that we're not going to quit until he's done. And what's kind of there in verse 4, what's kind of implied is that there's going to be some suffering involved. Because what would cause him to grow faint? Why might he be discouraged? What's implied there, actually the fourth servant song, which is Isaiah 53, actually gets to how he works all of that out. But before we get to 53 and before I have, I have Jeremiah come in, let's think about that servant for a second. Right? Jesus is the one that perfectly brings this gentleness and power together. Did you ever think about that? Here's the, he's the one who can fall asleep in the boat and then they wake him up, and he tells the winds and the waves to be quiet, and they do. He's the one that walks into the temple and 
turns the temple tables over, but then says, let the little children come to me. He's the one who came full of grace and full of truth. And that's what he's called us to do. But that's hard, isn't it? Isn't that, do y'all struggle with that? How about, maybe, am I the only one? Anybody at home, do y'all struggle with that? It's easy to go to one extreme or the other, right? Either the extreme, well, it's all gentleness. And then we don't respond in the moments where we need to be strong. Or whether it's all strength and we blow everything up. But he has both. You know, as I, again, as I was thinking about, you can put up that next picture. Some of the saints that have gone on before, last year, there was that PBS special on the black church. And it began to talk about some of the amazing stories of what God did through these people. But you look at them, you also say, well, hey, man, they weren't perfect people either. And not a perfect church. And even think about it, Dr. King referred to the, 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 um, the church in Acts in that letter from Birmingham jail. And you think about them. God did amazing things through them. But Lord, they had issues too, right? And so do we. So how are we going to be able to do this? How? Where do we find the strength? Where do we find the power to be able to do this? Well, in the very same place. In the very same place that Isaiah was pointing to. In the very same place that the church in Acts knew all about. At the very same place that Dr. King looked to. Guess who it is? God's chosen servant, Jesus Christ. Because you know what that other servant song says about him? There would come a time when he would be bruised. But it would be, he would be bruised for our transgressions. He would be crushed. But he'd be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brings us peace would be upon him and by his stripes we are healed. His life was quenched out like a, a burning wick. Why? So that through his death on the cross he might bring forth justice to the nations and, and forever. Our hope is in God's chosen servant because you know what he does now. He lives at the right hand of almighty God to intercede for us that we might live as God's chosen servants here. Oh, what, that, what might that mean for you? Can you trust him? Do you know that he's good? Do you know that he's great? Do you know that he'll give you everything that you need to be able to do what he's called you to do? Thanks be to God that we are God's chosen servants, but we don't do it in and of ourselves. We do it in faith and power in the servant that God has already chosen in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thanks for listening and God bless.